0: Brethren, I am grateful to be a part of this vast assembly of priesthood bearers. I am also especially mindful of a wonderful little band of missionaries with which my wife and I are currently blessed to labor in the New York-Rochester mission. Speaking perhaps for all mission presidents and the missionaries' parents, I wish to say during my temporary absence from them, please work hard, drive carefully, and be good— All of us who hold the priesthood of God are involved in a glorious common cause, helping our Father in Heaven bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. This task, in its simplest form, involves qualifying ourselves for the blessings of the Savior's Atonement and helping others to do the same. Over the years, as I have struggled with my own weaknesses and have tried in my way to help others overcome theirs, I have received assistance and motivation from a variety of sources. Personal prayer, my knowledge of an interested, loving Father in Heaven and His plan of salvation, the scriptures, the temple, and the promptings of the Holy Ghost have been especially helpful. However, even more immediate than these in some ways have been the influence and inspiration provided by the lives of noble people. I am ever impressed and deeply moved by the power of even one good life. From among many exemplary lives in our rich history as a people, I wish to share examples from just two. The first is from the life of the Prophet Joseph Smith. During a bitter winter of imprisonment in Richmond, Missouri, Joseph and some fifty other brethren were subjected to great hardship and exposure. One of their greatest trials was to endure the blasphemies and filthy language of their guards as they boast of their boasted of their unspeakable cruelty to the Saints. Of one particularly tedious night, Elder Parley P. Pratt wrote, I had listened until I became so disgusted, shocked, horrified, and so filled with the spirit of indignant justice that I could scarcely refrain from rising upon my feet and rebuking the guards, but had said nothing to Joseph or anyone else, although I lay next to him and knew he was awake. On a sudden, he rose to his feet and spoke in a voice of thunder, or as the roaring lion, uttering as near as I can recollect the following words, Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit! In the name of Jesus Christ I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another minute and bear such language. See such talk, or you or I die this instant. He ceased to speak. He stood erect in terrible majesty, chained and without a weapon. Calm, unruffled, and dignified as an angel, he looked upon the quailing guards whose weapons were lowered or dropped to the ground, whose knees smote together, and who, shrinking into a corner or crouching at his feet, begged his pardon and remained quiet until a change of guards. Elder Pratt continues, I have seen the ministers of justice clothed in magisterial robes and criminals arraigned before them while life was suspended on a breath in the courts of England I have witnessed a Congress in solemn session to give laws to nations. I have tried to conceive of kings, of royal courts, of thrones and crowns, and of emperors assembled to decide the fate of kingdoms. But dignity and majesty have I seen but once, as it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in an obscure village of Missouri. Does not this image of the Prophet Joseph courageously rebuking the forces of evil move us to do likewise. The second example is from the life of Willard Bean, a remarkable man who became known as the Fighting Parson. In the spring of 1915, Willard and his new bride, Rebecca, were called by the president, Joseph F. Smith, to serve a mission for five years or longer in Palmyra, New York. Their task was to occupy the recently acquired Joseph Smith home and farm and to reestablish the Church in the hostile environment which still existed at the time, in Palmyra. The beans were rebuffed on every front as they settled into the Smith home. The townspeople would not speak to them or wait on them in their stores. Passersby would pause in front of their home and shout obscenities. Their children were assigned to sit in the back corners of the schoolroom and were shunned by the other children in class. Willard, who was an accomplished athlete and had been a prize-winning boxer, decided to improve public relations by putting on a boxing exhibition in Palmyra. A ring was set up in an old opera house, and the fighting parson challenged all comers to a boxing match. When the night of the exhibition arrived, the toughest men in Palmyra sat in the first few rows. One by one, they entered the ring, only to be carried out again in a matter of seconds. (laughs) This continued until the seventh challenger was similarly disposed. Brother Bean's fighting abilities were more spontaneously employed on another occasion as he walked along the unfriendly streets of Palmyra A man watering his front lawn one afternoon suddenly turned the hose on Willard and taunted, I understand you people believe in baptism by immersion. The spry athletic Willard reportedly vaulted over the fence, separating them, and replied, Yes, and we also believe in the laying on of hands. (laughs) Although Brother Bean's methods were a little unorthodox, and definitely not compatible with the current approved missionary program of the Church, <laughs> they were nonetheless effective. The people of Palmyra began begrudgingly to yield and to accept the beans as the good people they were. In time, they were invited to participate in local churches and to join the civic organizations of the day. They established a branch of the Church and helped acquire the Hill Cumora and the Martin Harris and Peter Whitmer farms. The five years or longer mission to which the Prophet had called them stretched to nearly 25 years before it concluded. During that time, the attitude of the people of Palmyra had changed from hostility toward the Beans to toleration, then admiration, and finally to love. The power of good lives is truly great. I am personally greatly motivated by the modest written and oral traditions of my own father's which have been handed down. For instance, as a young boy, my great-grandfather arose one Christmas morning with great anticipation and came down from the loft where he slept to inspect the stocking he had hung by the fireplace the previous night. To his dismay, he found what was to constitute his entire Christmas that year—one piece of whorehound candy. He was immediately faced with a weighty decision. Should he eat the candy in one glorious burst of flavor, or should he make it last? The scarcity of such delicacies apparently convinced him to make it last. He carefully licked the solitary piece of candy a few times and then wrapped it in tissue paper and hid it under his mattress. Each Sunday thereafter, following dinner, he retreated to his bed, retrieved his treasure, and enjoyed a few pleasurable licks. In that way, he nursed the piece of candy through an entire year's enjoyment. (laughs) This is obviously not an account of deeds of heroic proportions, and yet in these times of overindulgence and excess, it is somehow very inspiring and strengthening to me to know that a little of my great-grandfather's frugal blood flows in my own veins. The Lord is surely aware of our need to feel the influence of good people. That may be one reason why He has established a pattern of companionships as we work together through the priesthood to serve Him and His children. That also may be why He has counseled that if any man among you be strong in the Spirit, let him take with him him that is weak, that he may be edified in all meekness, that he may become strong also." I have personally experienced the benefit of such a priesthood apprenticeship. In my ironic Priesthood years, a man who this evening is a silver-haired stake patriarch, became my senior home teaching companion. Under his wise tutelage, and in spite of considerable resistance on my part, I learned for the first time how to warn, expound, exhort, and teach, and to invite all to come unto Christ. When the time later came at age 19 for a full-time mission, I did not really need a missionary preparation course. I had had one. I thank God for the love and influence of such mentors. Before concluding, I hope you will pardon a personal reference to my own father and the power of his good life in mine. For a half century now I have benefited from his wisdom, his generosity, and his goodness. I am not sure I realized the full extent of his influence until recently as I prepared to return home Following the final session of a state conference to which I had been assigned, an elderly brother came up from the congregation to meet me. He thanked me for coming, and then, in obvious reference to the many times I must have quoted my father and referred to his teachings during the conference sessions, he said, Brother Jensen, if you are ever assigned again to our stake, why don't you just send your father? My hope is that in some small way I will have a similar influence for lasting good in the lives of our own children. The list of valiant people whose lives touch our own includes family members, missionary companions, friends, Church leaders, teachers, and associates from various walks of life, some we know intimately and others only by reputation. Less obvious to most of us is the influence we may be having in the lives of others. This interaction, to me, is one of the reasons why a community of believing Latter-day Saints is a foundational element of the gospel. It also explains why we build meeting houses rather than hermitages. It is through the lives of good people that we at least in part become better acquainted with the greatest of all lives. When we see Christ's image in the countenances of others, it helps us live to receive it in our own. I thank God... For the blessing of good people in all of our lives, and pray that we may all in some small way serve that same purpose in the lives of others. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: My dear brothers and sisters, on this beautiful Easter morning, prayers of gratitude for the life and mission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ fill the Sabbath air, while strains of inspiring music comfort our hearts and whisper to our souls the ageless salutation, Peace be unto you. In a world where peace is such a universal quest, we sometimes wonder why violence walks our streets, accounts of murder and senseless killings fill the columns of our newspapers, and family quarrels and disputes mar the sanctity of the home, and smother the tranquility of our lives. Perhaps we stray from the path which leads to peace and find it necessary to pause, to ponder, and to reflect on the teachings of the Prince of Peace and determine to incorporate them in our thoughts and our actions, and to live a higher law, walk a more elevated road, and be a better disciple of Christ. The ravages of hunger in Somalia, the brutality of hate in Bosnia, and the ethnic struggles across the globe remind us that the peace we seek will not come without effort and determination. Anger, hatred, and contention are foes not easily subdued. These enemies inevitably leave in their destructive wake tears of sorrow, the pain of conflict, and the shattered hopes of what could have been. Their sphere of influence is not restricted to the battlefields of war, but can be observed altogether too frequently in the home, around the hearth, and within the heart. So soon do many forget, and so late do they remember, the counsel of the Lord. There shall be no disputations among you. For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger, one against another. But this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. As we turn backward the clock of time, we recall that some fifty-five years ago a desperately arranged peace, a conference of peace, convened in the Bavarian city of Munich. Leaders of the European powers assembled, even as the world tottered on the brink of war. Their purpose, openly stated, was to pursue a course which they felt would avert war and maintain peace. Mistrust, intrigue, a quest for power, doomed to failure that conference. The outcome was not peace in our time, but rather war and destruction to a degree not previously experienced. Overlooked, or at least set aside, was the hauntingly touching appeal of one who had fallen in an earlier war. He seemed to be riding in behalf of millions of comrades, friend and foe alike. In Flanders' fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. Are we doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past? After such a brief interval of peace following World War I came the cataclysm of World War II. In fact, this June will mark the 50th anniversary of the famed landings of Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy. Tens of thousands of dignitaries and veterans will flock to the scene as the landings are reenacted. One writer observed, Lower Normandy has more than its share of hallowed dead. Their bodies lie in graves from Falaise to Cherbourg. 13,796 Americans, 17,958 British, 8,658 Canadian, 650 Polish, and around 65,000 Germans. More than 106,000 dead in all. And that is just the military, all killed in the space of a summer holiday. Similar accounts could be written describing the terrible losses in other theaters of combat in that same conflict. The famed statesman William Gladstone described the formula for peace when he declared, We look forward to the time when the power of love will replace the love of power. Then... Will our world know the blessings of peace? World peace, though a lofty goal, is but an outgrowth of the personal peace each individual seeks to attain. I speak not of the peace promoted by man, but peace as promised of God. I speak of peace in our homes, peace in our hearts, even peace in our lives. Peace after the way of man is perishable, Peace after the manner of God will prevail. We're reminded that anger doesn't solve anything. It builds nothing, but it can destroy everything. The consequences of conflict are so devastating that we yearn for guidance, even a way, to ensure our success as we seek the path to peace. What is the way to obtain such a universal blessing? Are there prerequisites? Let us remember that to obtain God's blessings, one must do God's bidding. May I suggest this morning three ideas to prompt our thinking and guide our footsteps. First, search inward. Second, reach outward. And third, look heavenward. First, search inward. Self-evaluation is always a difficult procedure. We're so frequently tempted to gloss over areas which demand correction and dwell endlessly on our individual strengths. President Ezra Taft Benson counsels us, The price of peace is righteousness. Men and nations may loudly proclaim, Peace, peace, but there shall be no peace until individuals nurture in their souls those principles of personal purity, integrity, and character which foster the development of peace. Peace cannot be imposed. It must come from the lives and hearts of men. There is no other way. Elder Richard L. Evans, who stood at this pulpit for many years on a weekly basis, observed, to find peace the peace within, the peace that passeth understanding. Men must live in honesty, honoring each other, honoring obligations, working willingly, loving and cherishing loved ones, serving and considering others with patience, with virtue, with faith and forbearance, with the assurance that life is for learning, for serving, for repenting and improving. And God be thanked for the blessed principles of repenting and improving, which is a way that is open to us all. The place of parents in the home and the family is of vital importance as we examine our personal responsibilities in this regard. Recently, a distinguished group met in conference to examine the increase of violence in the lives of individuals, particularly the young. Some observations from their deliberations are helpful to us as we, you and I, examine our priorities. I quote, A society that views graphic violence as entertainment should not be surprised when senseless violence shatters the dreams of its youngest and brightest. Unemployment and despair can lead to desperation, but most people will not commit desperate acts if they have been taught that dignity, honesty, and integrity are more important than revenge or rage, if they understand that respect and kindness ultimately give one a better chance at success. The women of the Anti-Violence Summit have hit on the solution, the only one that can reverse a downward spiral of destructive behavior and senseless pain. The formula, a return to old-fashioned family values will work wonders. So frequently, we mistakenly believe that our children need more things, when in reality their silent pleadings are simply for more of our time. I submit that the accumulation of wealth or the multiplication of assets belie the Master's teaching when he counseled lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal for where your treasure is there will your heart be also the other evening I saw large masses of parents and children crossing an intersection in Salt Lake City en route to the Delta Center to see the Disney on Ice production of Beauty and the Beast. I actually pulled my car over to the curb to watch the gleeful throng. Fathers, who I am absolutely certain were cajoled into going to the event, (laughs) held tightly in their hands the small and clutching hands of their precious children. Here was love in action. Here was an unspoken sermon of caring. Here was a rearranging of time as a God-given priority. Truly, peace will reign triumphant when we improve ourselves after the pattern taught by the Lord. Then we will appreciate the deep spirituality hidden behind the simple words of a familiar song. There is beauty all around when there's love at home. Second, reach outward. Though exaltation is a personal matter, and while individuals are saved not as a group but indeed as individuals, yet one cannot live in a vacuum. Membership in the Church calls forth a determination to serve. A position of responsibility may not be of recognized importance, nor may the reward be broadly known. Service to be acceptable to the Savior must come from willing minds, ready hands, and pledged hearts. Occasionally, discouragement may darken our pathway. Frustration may be a constant companion. In our ears there may sound the sophistry of Satan as he whispers, you cannot save the world. Your small efforts are meaningless. You haven't time to be concerned for others. Trusting in the Lord. Let us turn our heads from such falsehoods and make certain our feet are firmly planted in the path of service and our hearts and souls dedicated to follow the example of the Lord. In moments when the light of resolution dims and when the heart grows faint, we can take comfort from His promise. Be not weary in well-doing. Out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. During the past year, the primary organization has conducted an effort to have the children become better acquainted with the holy temples of God. Frequently, this has entailed a visit to the temple grounds. The laughter of small children, the joy of unfettered youth, and the exuberance of energy displayed by them gladdened the heart of this observer. As a loving teacher guided a boy or a girl to the large door of the Salt Lake Temple, and the little one reached out and up to touch the temple, I could almost see the Master welcoming the little children to his side and could almost hear his comforting words, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Number three, look heavenward. As we do, we find it comforting and satisfying to communicate with our Heavenly Father through prayer that path to spiritual power, even a passport to peace. We're reminded of His beloved Son, the Prince of Peace, that pioneer who literally showed the way for others to follow. His divine plan can save us from the Babylon's of sin, complacency, and error, his example points the way. When faced with temptation, he shunned it. When offered the world, he declined it. When asked for his life, he gave it. On one significant occasion, Jesus took a text from Isaiah, and I quote, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. A clear pronouncement of the peace that passeth all understanding. Frequently, my brothers and sisters, death comes as an intruder. It is an enemy that suddenly appears in the midst of life's feast, putting out its lights, and its gaiety. Death lays its heavy hand upon those dear to us and at times leaves us baffled and wondering. In certain situations, as in great suffering and illness, death comes as an angel of mercy. But to those bereaved, the Master's promise of peace is the comforting balm which heals. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. How I pray that all who have loved, loved then lost, might know the reality of the Resurrection and have the unshakable knowledge that families can be forever. One such was a Major Sullivan Ballou who, during the time of the American Civil War, wrote a touching letter to his wife just one week before he was killed in the Battle of Bull Run. With me, feel the love of his soul, his trust in God, his courage, his faith, dated July 14, 1861 a letter to his wife. My very dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow, lest I should not be able to write again. I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I shall be no more. I have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which I am engaged, and my courage does not halt nor falter. I am perfectly willing to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence could break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me unresistibly on with all these chains to the battlefield. The memories of the blissful moments I've spent with you come creeping over me, and I feel most gratified to God and to you that I've enjoyed them so long. It is hard, hard for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and seen our sons grow up to honorable manhood around us. I have, I know, but few and small claims upon divine providence, but something whispers to me. Perhaps it is the wafted prayer of my little Edgar that I shall return to my loved ones unharmed. If I do not, my dear, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. And when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive me my faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless and foolish I have oftentimes been. How gladly would I wash out with my tears every little spot upon your happiness. But, O oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and the unseen around those they loved, I shall always be near you in the gladdest days and in the darkest nights." Always, always, and if there be a soft breeze upon your cheek, it shall be my breath. As the cool air fans your throbbing temple, it shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for thee, for we shall meet again. The darkness of death, can ever be dispelled by the light of revealed truth. I am the resurrection and the life, spoke the Master. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Added to his own words are those of the angel, spoken to the weeping Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as they approached the tomb to care for the body of their Lord. Why seekest ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Such is the message of Easter morn. He lives, and because he lives, all shall indeed live again. This knowledge provides the peace for loved ones of those whose graves are marked by the crosses of Normandy, those hallowed resting places in Flanders' fields where the poppies blow in springtime and for those who rest in countless other locations, including the depths of the mighty sea. Oh, sweet the joy this sentence gives. I know that my Redeemer lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
2: Faith of our Fathers, mighty faith, we will be true to Thee till death. I am grateful for the singing of those words by this wonderful choir earlier in the meeting. My My beloved brethren, this has been a wonderful meeting. The inspiration of the Lord has been made manifest. I sense keenly the responsibility of speaking to you. I feel my own inadequacy and seek the strengthening, inspiring Spirit of the Lord to guide me. It is a tremendously humbling experience to realize that the Melchizedek priesthood which we hold is after the order of the Son of God and that we have responsibility and accountability to Him and our Eternal Father for all that we do in exercising the stewardship given us. What I say of myself concerning this matter is equally applicable to all who hold office in this the Church and Kingdom of God. It is no simple or unimportant thing to wear the mantle of the holy priesthood in whatever office or at whatever level and in whatever responsibility we might be called to serve. Every member of this Church who has entered the waters of baptism has become a party to a sacred covenant. Each time we partake of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we renew that covenant. We take upon ourselves anew the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and promise to keep His commandments. He in turn promises that His Spirit will be with us. As Brother Didier has reminded us, we are a covenant people. This afternoon we followed the customary practice of sustaining Church officers. It may appear as a somewhat perfunctory exercise, but I remind you that it is an act of grave and serious importance an act required under the revelation of the Lord, which states, Again I say unto you that it shall not be given to anyone to go forth to preach my gospel or to build up my Church, except he be ordained by someone who has authority, and it is known to the Church that he has authority and has been regularly ordained by the heads of the Church. Concerning the sustaining of officers, President John Taylor once said, We hold up our right hand when voting in token before God that we will sustain those for whom we vote. And if we cannot feel to sustain them, we ought not to hold up our hands, because to do this would be to act the part of hypocrites. For when we lift up our hands in this way, it is in token to God that we are sincere in what we do and that we will sustain the parties we vote for. If we agree to do a thing and do not do it, we become covenant breakers and violators of our obligations, which are perhaps as solemn and binding as anything we can enter into. This principle applies to every priesthood quorum and every other organization of the Church, where officers are sustained by the membership. Almost universally, the sustaining is unanimously in the affirmative, as it was this afternoon, because of acceptance in the Church of the validity of the declaration found in the fifth article of our faith. We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. Here again is set forth a significant and unique feature established by the Lord in the governance of His Church. The right to nominate rests with a superior officer or officers at whatever the level. But that nomination must be sustained, that is, accepted and confirmed by the membership of the Church The procedure is peculiar to the Lord's Church. There is no seeking for office, no jockeying for position, no campaigning to promote one's virtues. Contrast the Lord's way with the way of the world. The Lord's way is quiet. It is a way of peace. It is without fanfare or monetary costs. It is without egotism or vanity or ambition. Under the Lord's plan, those who have responsibility to select officers are governed by one overriding question, whom would the Lord have? There is quiet and thoughtful deliberation, and there is much of prayer to receive the confirmation of the Holy Spirit that the choice is correct. We've sustained this afternoon a number of newly called officers. We welcome each with love and respect. Among these is Brother Robert D. Hales to become a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. He fills a vacancy made by the passing of our beloved friend and associate, Elder Marvin J. Ashton. In filling that vacancy, each member of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve was at liberty to make suggestions. I am confident that in every case there was solemn and earnest prayer. A choice was then made by the Presidency again after solemn and serious prayer. This choice was sustained by the Council of the Twelve. Today the membership of the Church and Conference Assembled has sustained that choice. I give you my testimony, my brethren that the impression to call Brother Hales to this high and sacred office came by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of prophecy and revelation. Brother Hales did not suggest his own name. His name was suggested by the Spirit. He will be ordained and set apart under the hands of his associates, who previously have been ordained to the holy apostleship. In that ordination he will receive all of the priesthood keys available to men upon this earth. But there will be restrictions with reference to the exercise of some of those keys. The president of the Church holds the authority to exercise all of the keys of the priesthood at any given time. He may delegate, and in the present instance has delegated, to his counselors and to those of the Twelve the exercise of various of those keys. This brings me to a matter of which I have spoken before from this pulpit. I do so again because of what some are writing and saying incident to the condition of President Benson's health. People throughout the Church are naturally anxious to know of the President's condition. President Benson is now in his 95th year. As we have previously said from this and other pulpits, he suffers seriously from the effects of age and illness and has been unable to fulfill important duties of his sacred office. This is not a situation without precedent. Other Presidents of the Church have also been ill or unable to function fully in the closing months or years of their lives. It is possible that this will happen again in the future. The principles and procedures which the Lord has put in place for the governance of His Church make provision for any such circumstance. It is important, my brethren, that there be no doubts or concerns about the governance of the Church and the exercise of the prophetic gifts including the right to inspiration and revelation in administering the affairs and programs of the Church when the President may be ill or is not able to function fully. The First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve Apostles called and ordained to hold the keys of the priesthood have the authority and responsibility to govern the Church to administer its ordinances to expound its doctrine and to establish and maintain its practices. Each man who is ordained an apostle and sustained a member of the Council of the Twelve is sustained as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Like those before him, President Benson was the senior apostle at the time he was called as president of the Church. His counselors were drawn from the Council of the Twelve. Therefore, all incumbent members of the Quorum of the First Presidency and of the Council of the Twelve have been the recipients of the keys, rights, and authority pertaining to the holy apostleship. I quote from the Doctrine and Covenants. Of the Melchizedek Priesthood, three presiding high priests chosen by the body appointed and ordained to that office and upheld by the confidence, faith, and prayer of the Church form a quorum of the Presidency of the Church. When the President is ill or not able to function fully in all of the duties of his office, his two counselors together comprise a quorum of the First Presidency. They carry on with the day-to-day work of the Presidency. In exceptional circumstances, when only one may be able to function, he may act in the authority of the office of the Presidency, as set forth in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 102, verses 10 and 11. When on November 10, 1985, President Benson called his two counselors, it was he himself who was voice in setting them apart with the members of the Council of the Twelve Apostles also laying their hands upon the heads of the counselors, each one in turn as he was set apart. President Benson was at the time in good health, fully able to function in every way. Furthermore, following this setting apart, he signed with his own hand powers of agency giving each of his counselors the authority to direct the business of the Church. Under these specific and plenary delegations of authority, the counselors in the First Presidency carry on with the regular work of this office. But any major questions of policy, procedures, programs, or doctrine are considered deliberately and prayerfully by the First Presidency and the Twelve together. These two quorums, the Quorum of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, Meeting together with every man having total freedom to express himself, consider every major question. And now I quote again from the word of the Lord. And every decision made by either of these quorums must be by the unanimous voice of the same. That is, every member in each quorum must be agreed to its decisions in order to make their decisions of the same power or validity one with the other. No decision emanates from the deliberations of the First Presidency and the Twelve without total unanimity among all concerned. At the outset, in considering matters, there may be differences of opinion. These are to be expected. These men come from different backgrounds. They are men who think for themselves. But before a final decision is reached, there comes a unanimity of mind and voice. This is to be expected if the revealed word of the Lord is followed, again from the Revelation. The decisions of these quorums, or either of them, are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness and lowliness of heart, meekness and long suffering and in faith and virtue and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Because the promise is, if these abound in them, they shall not be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. I had by way of personal testimony that during the twenty years I served as a member of the Council of the Twelve, And during the nearly thirteen years that I have served in the First Presidency, there has never been a major action taken where this procedure was not observed. I have seen differences of opinion presented in these deliberations. Out of this very process of men speaking their minds has come a sifting and winnowing of ideas and concepts but I have never observed serious discord or personal enmity among my brethren. I have rather observed a beautiful and remarkable thing, the coming together under the directing influence of the Holy Spirit and under the power of revelation, of divergent views until there is total harmony and full agreement. Only then is implementation made. That, I testify, represents the spirit of revelation manifested again and again in directing this the Lord's work. I know of no other governing body of any kind of which this might be said. This procedure obtains even in the absence of the President of the Church. I hasten to add, however, that the Brethren would not be inclined to do anything which they feel would be out of harmony with the attitude, feelings, and positions of our beloved leader, the Prophet of the Lord. It must be recognized that the President, when he became the senior apostle, had moved up through the ranks of seniority over a period of many years of service in the Quorum of the Twelve. During this time, his brethren came to know him well. During the years of his ministry, he expressed himself on the many issues that came before that quorum. His views became well known. Those who love him, respect him, sustain and honor him as president of the Church and prophet, seer, and revelator of the Lord would not be disposed to go beyond what they recognize his position would be on any issue under consideration. I repeat for emphasis that all who have been ordained to the Holy Apostleship have had bestowed upon them the keys and the authority of this most high and sacred office. In this authority reside the powers of governance of the Church and Kingdom of God in the earth. There is order in the exercise of that authority. It is specifically set forth in the revelations of the Lord. It is known to all of the brethren and is observed by them all. I have said this, some of it repetitious of what I have said before, because of the present circumstances of our beloved prophet, President Ezra Taft Benson. Now, brethren— Let it be understood by all that Jesus Christ stands at the head of this Church, which bears His sacred name. He is watching over it. He is guiding it. Standing at the right hand of His Father, He directs this work. His is the prerogative, the power, the option to call men in His way to high and sacred offices and to release them according to His will— by calling them home. He is the master of life and death. I do not worry about the circumstances in which we find ourselves. I accept these circumstances as an expression of His will. I likewise accept the responsibility, acting with my brethren, to do all we can to move forward this holy work in a spirit of consecration, love, humility, duty, and loyalty. I assure each of you in the entire world that there is unity and brotherhood with total and united fidelity to one undergirding objective, and that is to build the kingdom of God in the earth. We know that as men we are feeble and inadequate in terms of the massive responsibility to carry the gospel of salvation to the nations of the earth, and to prepare men and women everywhere to walk the path of immortality and eternal life made possible through our Father's love and the Atonement of our divine Redeemer. We know also that with the blessing of the Almighty, if we are true and faithful, if we listen to the whisperings of the Holy Spirit, and follow those whisperings, we can, with our brethren and sisters, bring miracles to pass and accomplish the purposes for which we have been called under a divinely given call. God is at the helm—never doubt it. When we are confronted with opposition, He will open the way when there appears to be no way. Our individual efforts may be humble and appear somewhat insignificant. But the accumulated good works of all, laboring together with a common purpose, will bring to pass great and wondrous accomplishments. The world will be a better place for our united service. Our people will be a happy people, a blessed people, a people whose shepherd is our Lord, leading us through pastures green and peaceful if we will walk after His pattern and in His light. Let not any voices of discontent disturb you. Let not the critics worry you, as Alma declared long ago. Trust no one to be your teacher nor your minister, except he be a man of God, walking in His ways and keeping His commandments. The truth is in this Church. The authority is in this priesthood. The leadership is in this great body of priesthood at every level of governance. As the psalmist declared, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. He who is our Savior slumbers not nor sleeps, as he watches over this his kingdom. As surely as this is the work of the Lord, there will be opposition. There will be those—perhaps not a few—who, with the sophistry of beguiling words and clever design, will spread doubt and seek to undermine the foundation on which this cause is established. They will have their brief day in the sun. They may have for a brief season the plaudits of the doubters and the skeptics and the critics, but they will fade and be forgotten as have their kind in the past. Meanwhile, we shall go forward, regardless of their criticism, aware of but undeterred by their statements and actions, said the Lord even before the Church was organized. Therefore, fear not, little flock. Do good. Let earth and hell combine against you, for if ye are built upon my rock, they cannot prevail. Look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. Behold the wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. God is our Father. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He is the head of this Church. He makes known His will and will continue to make known His will concerning it. Joseph Smith was a prophet through all whom all of the keys of the priesthood on which we, under which we operate were restored in this the dispensation of the fullness of times. Each man who has succeeded him as president of the Church has been a prophet. We have a prophet today. He may not be able to speak to us as he once did. He need not. During the time that he stood before us as the president of this Church, he pleaded with us to do more than we are now doing and to be better than we now are. When the Lord calls him home, there will be another to take his place. No one knows who that will be. No one needs speculate. I leave you my blessing and love and my testimony of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
1: Elder Marlon K. Jensen of the Seventy has just spoken to us. It will now be my opportunity, Brother Monson, to express a few thoughts on this occasion. What a solemn thought to contemplate the vast priesthood audience assembled here in the Tabernacle on Temple Square and gathered in hundreds of buildings throughout the world. I sincerely pray for the Spirit of the Lord to guide my remarks this evening. The presence of those who hold the Aaronic Priesthood brings to mind my own experiences as I graduated from primary, having memorized the Articles of Faith, and then received the Aaronic Priesthood and the office and calling of a deacon. To pass the sacrament was a privilege, and to gather fast offerings, a sacred trust. I was set apart as the secretary of the deacon's quorum and at that moment felt the boyhood had passed and young manhood had begun. Can you young men realize the shock I felt while attending an officers' meeting of our ward conference when a member of the stake presidency, after calling upon the priesthood and auxiliary leaders to speak, without warning read my name and office, inviting me to give an account of my stewardship and express my feelings regarding my calling as secretary of the deacon's quorum and thus a ward officer. I don't recall a word I said but a sense of responsibility engulfed me never to depart thereafter. I sincerely hope that each deacon, teacher, and priest is aware of the significance of his priesthood ordination and the privilege which is his to fulfill a vital role in the life of every member through his participation in administration and passing of the sacrament each Sunday. At the time I held the Aaronic Priesthood, it seemed we always sang the same hymns during the opening exercises of priesthood meeting. They were, Come all ye sons of God, Come all ye sons of Zion, How firm a foundation, Israel, Israel, God is calling, and a few others. Our voices were not the best, nor was volume adequate, but we learned the words and we remembered the message of each hymn. I smile when I reflect on an account I heard concerning Brother Thales Smith and his service in a bishopric with Bishop Israel Heaton. Sister Heaton called Brother Smith one Sunday morning and mentioned that her husband was ill and unable to attend priesthood meeting. Brother Smith reported this to the Brethren assembled that morning and then, without thinking, asked the Brother who was to offer the invocation to remember Bishop Israel Heaton in the prayer, following which we will sing, Israel, Israel, God is calling. (laughs) I suppose the smiles outnumbered any frowns. By the way, Bishop Heaton recovered. (laughs) The opening exercises of priesthood meeting may be brief, but should be held in each ward without fail. It brings to the hearts and souls of all assembled, a spirit of unity, the brotherhood of priesthood, and a beautiful reminder of our sacred duties. All who hold the priesthood have opportunities for service to our Heavenly Father and to His children on earth. You know it's contrary to the spirit of service to live selfishly within ourselves and disregard the needs of others. The Lord will guide us and make us equal to the challenges before us if we will remember His promise and counsel, and I quote, The power and authority of the higher or Melchizedek priesthood is to hold the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the Church, to have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom, to have the heavens opened unto them, to commune with the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, and to enjoy the communion and presence of God the Father, and Jesus the mediator of the new covenant." Close quote. To merit this blessing, it is necessary for each of us to recall who is the giver of every gift and the provider of every blessing, remembering the worth of souls is great in the sight of God and is not an idle phrase but a heaven-sent declaration for our enlightenment and our guidance we must ever remember who we are and what God expects us to become. This pearl of philosophy is hidden away in the delightful musical Fiddler on the Roof as the peasant father Tevye counsels his growing daughters. Other contemporary plays carry thoughts worthy of our consideration as we prepare for noble service. From the production of Camelot, comes the observation, violence is not strength and compassion is not weakness. From the play Shenandoah, if we don't try, we don't do. And if we don't do, then why are we here? And then Eliza Doolittle, the pupil of Professor Henry Iggins in My Fair Lady, observes to Colonel Pickering her philosophy, the difference between a lady and a flower girl. Is not how she behaves, but how she's treated. I shall always be a flower girl to Professor Iggins, because he always treats me as a flower girl and always will. But I know I can be a lady to you, because you always treat me as a lady and always will. And then again from Camelot, King Arthur pleaded with Guinevere, we must not let our passions destroy our dreams. That's good priesthood philosophy. And the list continues on. In reality, each magnificent observation is but a paraphrase of the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our exemplar. He is our guide. It is in His footsteps we must walk to be successful in our priesthood callings. May I share with you tonight Some words of wisdom from fellow servants who labored in the ranks but who have now gone to their eternal reward. First, from a wise stake president to a young bishop. He said, The work is all-consuming, but ever realize three guidelines to be a successful bishop? One, feed the poor. Two, have no favorites. And number three, tolerate no iniquity. Commenting on this last guideline, President Spencer W. Kimball declared, when dealing with transgression, apply a bandage large enough to cover the wound, no larger, no smaller. Second, prior to the creation of the Toronto-Ontario stake in 1960, Elder L. Ray L. Christensen, that marvelous leader of yesteryear, then an assistant to the Council of the Twelve, recounted for the benefit of priesthood leaders a lesson from his own life when he was called to preside over the East Cache Stake in Logan, Utah. He mentioned that he and his counselors met to discuss what the stake members most needed and which principles of the gospel the stake presidency should stress. Their opinions varied from sacrament meeting attendance to observance of the Sabbath day, with a lot of territory in between. At length, they agreed that the principle most needed was spirituality. They appreciated the truth found in a favorite observation of mine when one deals in generalities, he will rarely have a success. But when he deals in specifics, he will rarely have a failure. The four year plan of President Christiansen and his counselors was refined in a splendid fashion year one. We shall increase the spirituality of the membership of the East Cache Stake by every family having family prayer. Year two. We shall increase the spirituality of the membership of the East Cache Stake by every member attending sacrament meeting weekly. Year three. We shall increase the spirituality of the membership of the East Cache Stake by each member paying an honest tithing. Year four, we shall increase the spirituality of the membership of the stake by each member honoring the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Each was the theme for the entire year. Emphasis was given constantly. And after the four-year program was concluded, all four of the specific objectives had been attained, but of even greater significance. The spirituality of the membership of the East Cache stake had shown marked improvement. Spirituality is not bestowed simply by wishing. Rather, it comes quietly and imperceptibly by serving. The Lord counseled, Therefore, if ye have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. Many years ago, while attending a district conference in Ottawa, Canada, I called two men from a small branch, the Cornwall branch, to serve in responsible positions in the Lord's service. I jotted down their heartfelt response and share with you tonight the words from that time. From Elder John Brady, rather recently deceased, he said at that time, I have covenanted. I will serve faithfully. From Walter Danick. In response to an invitation to serve, he said, The gospel is the most important thing in my life. I will serve gladly. It was President John Taylor who provided rather direct counsel to those of us who hold the priesthood. If you do not magnify your calling, God will hold you responsible for those whom you might have saved had you done your duty. Somehow I feel that if we will always remember Who it is we serve and on whose errand we are, we will draw closer to the source of the inspiration we seek, even our Master and our Savior." President Harold B. Lee had a marked influence on Sister Monson and me and our three children. He was a compassionate leader. On rather brief occasions, he commented to each of our children in a tone which reflected deep spirituality genuine interest, and inspired counsel. Our youngest son Clark was about to turn 12 when we chanced to see Brother Lee in the parking lot of the Church office building. He asked Clark, How old you are? How old he was. Clark answered, Soon to be 12, came the second question. What happens to you when you turn 12? I'll tell you, I agonized waiting for the response. He said, I'll receive the Aaronic Priesthood and be ordained a deacon. I thought, hallelujah, the right answer. (laughs) With a warm smile and the clasp of his hand, Brother Lee said, Bless you, my boy. Our daughter Anne, as a young teenager, was with her mother and me when we encountered Brother Lee and proper introductions were made. Brother Lee took our daughter's hand in his and with a lovely smile said to her, You, my dear one, our beautiful inside as well as outside what a choice young lady you are she's never forgotten it no. in a more solemn setting brother lee met me one evening on the steps of the lds hospital here in salt lake city by appointment we were to give a blessing to my eldest son tom who was then in his later teens surgery awaited which could be of a most serious nature brother lee took my hand before we ascended the stairs and, looking me straight in the eye, said to me, Tom, there is no place I would rather be at this moment than by your side to participate with you in providing a sacred priesthood blessing to your Son. We then went to his room where he said to Tom, We are about to give you a blessing, even a priesthood ordinance. We approach this privilege in humility, for we remember the counsel of the Prophet Joseph Smith, who said, When those who hold the priesthood place their hands on the head of a person in this sacred ordinance, it is as though the hands of the Lord were placed thereon. The blessing was given. The surgery turned out to be minor, but lessons were learned Spirituality of a great leader was observed and a model to follow was provided. Brethren, there are tens of thousands of priesthood holders scattered among you who, through indifference, hurt feelings, shyness, or weakness, cannot bless to the fullest extent their wives and children without considering the lives of others whom they could bless and lift. Ours is the solemn duty to bring about a change. To take such an individual by the hand and help him arise and be well spiritually. As we do so, sweet wives will call our names blessed, and grateful children will marvel at the change in daddy as lives are altered and souls are saved. When I visited stake conferences as a member of the Twelve, I always took note of those stakes which had excelled in bringing to activity those brethren whose talents and potential leadership had lain dormant. Inevitably, I would ask, how were you able to achieve success? What did you do, and how did you do it? One such stake was the North Carbon stake when President Cecil Broadbent presided. Eighty-seven men had been reactivated and with their wives and children went to the Manti Temple in the space of one year, President Broadbent, upon hearing my questions, turned to his counselor, President Stanley Judd, a large and good-natured coal miner, and said, introducing him to me, this is President Judd's responsibility in the state presidency. He will answer your question. As I restated my questions to President Judd, I concluded with the plea. Will you tell me how you did it?" With a smile he replied, No. (laughs) I was stunned. Then he said, If I tell you how we did it, then you will tell others, and others will surpass our record. (laughs) I was still stunned. Then, with a twinkle in his eye, this wonderful man added, However, Brother Monson, if you will give me two tickets to General Conference, I'll tell you how we did it. (laughs) The tickets were provided. The success pattern was revealed. However, President Judd felt the contract was open-ended and asked for and received from me two tickets for each conference until he was eventually ordained a patriarch. The formula was the same, generally speaking, in each successful stake with regard to this phase of the work. It consisted of four ingredients. You priesthood leaders, jot them down. It will save you traveling all over the Church, for the principles are true. To bring the less active to a position of activity, follow these four guidelines. 1. Put forth your efforts at the ward level. 2. Involve the ward bishop. 3. Provide inspired teaching. And 4. Do not attempt to concentrate on all the brethren at once. Rather, work with a few husbands and their wives at a given time and then have them help you as you work with others. High-powered sales techniques are not the answer in priesthood leadership. Rather, devotion to duty, continuous effort, abundant love, and personal spirituality combine to touch the heart, prompt the change, and bring to the table of the Lord His hungry children who have wandered in the wilderness of the world but who now have returned home. Long years ago, I reorganized the Star Valley Stake. At the time, the legendary leader Francis E. Winters was released. He had served faithfully and with distinction for many years. The Sabbath day dawned. The members came from far and wide and crowded into the Afton, Wyoming Chapel. Every available space was taken. As the reorganization of the stake presidency was concluded, I did something I had not done before. I felt impressed to conduct a modest exercise, and I asked publicly at that time, Would all of you who have been given a name or been baptized or confirmed by Francis Winters please stand and remain standing? Many stood. Then I continued, Now will all of you who have been ordained or set apart by Francis Winters please stand and remain standing? Another large number swelled the ranks of those standing. Finally, will all of you who have received a blessing under the hands of Francis Winters please stand and remain standing? All the remainder stood. I turned to President Winters and, with tears coursing down my cheeks, said to him, President Winters, you see before you the result of your ministry as stake president. The Lord is pleased. Silence prevailed. Heads nodded their approval as sobs were then heard and handkerchiefs retrieved from every purse and pocket. It was one of the most spiritually rewarding experiences of my life. No one in that vast throng will ever forget how he or she felt at that hour. After the work of the conference had been concluded, goodbyes had been said, I began the drive home. I found myself singing the favorite hymn from the Sunday school days of my youth as I thought of Francis Winters. Thanks for the Sabbath school, hail to the day when evil and error are fleeing away. Thanks for our teachers who labor with care that we in the light of the gospel may share. Now in the morning of life let us try, each virtue to cherish, all vice to decry. Strive with the noble in deeds that exalt, and battle with energy each childish fault. And then I literally boomed the chorus. Join in the jubilee, mingle in song. Join in the joy of the Sabbath school throng. Great be the glory of those who do right who overcome evil in good take delight. I was all alone in the car. Or was I? The miles hurried by. In silent reverie, I reflected on the events of the conference. Francis Winters, a bookkeeper at the Community Cheese Factory, a man of modest means, a humble home, had walked the path that Jesus walked, and, like the Master, he went about doing good. He qualified for the Savior's description of Nathaniel, as he approached him from afar. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Brethren, my prayer tonight is that all of us, in whatever capacities we serve in the Church, may merit the gentle touch on our shoulder of the Master's hand and qualify for that same salutation received by Nathaniel, that we, at the conclusion of life's journey, may hear those divinely spoken words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And this I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. President Gordon B. Hinckley, First Counselor in the First Presidency, will be our concluding speaker. Before hearing his remarks, we remind you that the CBS Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be from 9.30 to 10 tomorrow morning. Those desiring to attend the broadcast in the Sunday morning session, which follows, must be in their seats before 9.15 AM, Daylight Savings Time. Because Daylight Savings Time begins at 2 AM tomorrow, we encourage you to move your clocks ahead one hour before you retire this evening. And as you leave this priesthood meeting tonight, We ask you to obey traffic rules, to use caution, and to be courteous in driving. We express our gratitude to the Melchizedek Priesthood Choir from the University, Utah region, for the beautiful music this evening. And following President Hinckley's address, the choir will conclude by singing, The Priesthood of Our Lord. And the benediction will then be offered by Elder John E. Fowler of the Seventy. President Hinckley.